You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Miguel Dalmau. Miguel is a comedian who has appeared on True TV, BET, and MTV, and his album can often be heard on XM Satellite Radio. He also has his own podcast called American Immigrant, where he interviews immigrants like himself who've come to America to pursue their dreams. In this episode, Miguel will share his story growing up in America after being rescued from abuse and poverty from the Dominican Republic by his mother and grandmother. My grandma had to like steal the passports from like my dad's safe like the night before and do all this crazy stuff when he was like drunk just to get us out of there and stuff. It was a complete heist that like these women in my life like put together to get me out of there. You'll hear how his immigration status left him ineligible for college scholarships and how that led him to pursue a career in comedy. I had a girlfriend at the time and what happened when I tried to go to get my scholarship and try to get grants and try to get whatever, they're like, you have no status, dude. I'm telling my situation and I'm making her laugh. And she's like, oh, you're so funny. You should be like a comedian. And I go, I should, right? And we'll talk about how, despite the fact that Miguel found early success in the New York comedy scene, he's fallen in love with the comedy community here in Philadelphia. I was so consumed with figuring out how to make it in comedy in New York. And then Philly became this perfect blend of just be yourself, but we also have opportunities out here. Like, so I got to do comedy the way I wanted. All this and more about Miguel Dalmau, his immigration story, and the Philly comedy scene right now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. Just a heads up, there is a decent amount of cursing in this episode. Also, stay tuned at the end of this episode for a clip of Miguel's stand-up routine. Okay, no more announcements. Let's go. As you're about to hear, Miguel Dalmau is one of the most energetic and fun people you could hope to be around. He's insanely quick to drop a punchline that would take me probably about 20 minutes to come up with, and he's a pretty optimistic guy, which is impressive given the fact that he had a pretty turbulent and unstable childhood. Miguel grew up in New York City and essentially raised himself, yet he would go on to do really well in school and have the chops to pursue a degree in medicine. But by the time he was ready to head off to college, his visa had expired, rendering him ineligible for financial aid. At that point, the only way he could make any money was through stand-up comedy. And while not everybody who follows comedy may have heard of Miguel quite yet, they definitely will very soon. But way before his entrance to the stand-up circuit, Miguel's story begins in a town in the Dominican Republic, where he lived until he was eight. Honestly, the one thing I do remember most vividly about Dominican Republic that I remember was the first time I ever thought to myself, I don't live in a great place, was when I went to school for the first time and I saw just the horribleness that was in school. It was just cylinder blocks. Well, what was horrible about it? It was legit. It went from kindergarten to 12th grade, first of all, and it wasn't that big of a school. And it wasn't that big of a school because not that many kids in the town that I lived in went to school. You know what I mean? So we were all there. Um, My principal, quote unquote, uh, spit every time he talked and gave a 30 minute lecture about Jesus every morning and how we needed Jesus in our lives. And if we weren't, Jesus was gonna come and kill us. And Jesus, and his shirt was completely unbuttoned, just spitting on people as he talked. (laughs) I remember one time my teacher was like, oh, I'm gonna teach you kids how to count to a hundred in English. 
and I had already come to America like visiting and I kind of like loved learning the language of English. I thought it was so exotic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I thought English was like, oh, look at these exotic white people speaking this language. Um, so because I've been to New York and back. It's the only exotic place I've been to is New York City. So I, I kind of up to 100 in, in English and the teacher was like, can you stop showing off? We don't appreciate that kind of behavior around here. So it was, it was very like, I already knew, education wise, I already knew that something was wrong when I was six years old. Yeah, so that's, I remember a lot of it from when I was young. So do you remember when you found out that you would be moving to America? I didn't find out I was moving to America because I wasn't allowed to know the plan of moving to America because I would tell my father that we were gonna move to America and that's where the problem lied. You see, I was, this is true, I was technically kidnapped because my mother was in a very abusive relationship. Like, I mean, we lived in a country where men rule, men are supreme. I mean, more than, you know, you could, I mean, actually my mom was born during the, a dictatorship that was like just the most brutal dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. She was born during that regime. And that's just, you know, how it works. Things linger around like that. I mean, we still have Reagan laws that are lingering around. You know I mean, imagine a dictator that murdered half of the population there. You know what I mean? Still lingering around. So my mom was in a very uh, abusive relationship and she couldn't get out of it. I mean, my dad was also educated. So he was a dude that knew how to get around, knew how to talk to the law, slick talker this dude was. So the way I left was literally like my grandmother, my mom was like, so my mom told my grandma like, hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna go to America and get a job, you know, and, and bring money. And then, you know, and then, you know, you guys can come. And my dad was like, perfect, you go. The kids are gonna be here with me. He was using us as a way to make sure she came back. And then when she was here in America, my grandmother picked us up and said, hey, I'm gonna take the kids over to my house so you can have a weekend to drink. And he's like, fuck yeah. But she secretly took us to the airport and like we left without him knowing. And you were, and that was that. And that, well, that well, there's a lot more to that, but that was essentially <laughs> how I came here. And I didn't know I was coming here. Like I literally got on a plane. I mean, I've been to New York before when I was younger, but I didn't know that like my grandma had to like steal the passports from like my dad's safe like the night before and do all this crazy stuff when he was like drunk just to get us out of there and stuff. It was very like- It's a heist. Yeah, it was, it was a complete heist that like these women in my life like put together to get me out of there. Wow. So was there a moment that you realized you wouldn't be going back? Uh, it was, it was legit when I arrived and I saw my mom like for the first time after a few years because she had been gone out of my life out of a few years. And uh, I, I was like, you know, where's dad? And she's like, no, no, we're not gonna go back to see him. And part of me was like, cool, yeah, cool. Like, you know, I was six and I was starting to already notice things that weren't right, you know what I mean? The way he acted and the way he just like lied about everything. I started to know at a young age. So I was like, uh, you know, it's one of those few kids who were like, good for you lady like good for you. i wasn't i didn't have the words to say but i was like good for you yeah, like yeah 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 so you that's felt it yeah that was my escape story from there wow yeah so then you started to just live a normal new york city life yeah i was in new york city for like uh so basically 20 years because i was from six to 26 i lived in new york city alone like I, I was just there grew up there started comedy there and then what took me from there to philly was actually a layover in Indianapolis. No way. Yeah, what happened was I was in New York City uh, out of divorce. I was just divorced at that point. And I had met a girl, a beautiful girl at a strip club. Okay, and I, you uh, do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I got her pregnant. We're still together. Love you very much, baby. Uh, but at that time, you know, I had, I had just gotten divorced and I had a baby and I had a second baby on the way. So I was so desperate and I was just doing comedy. And my paperwork still wasn't in order, so I couldn't really hold down a job because when you don't have paperwork, you're still in limbo and 
you know, you know, so it's very scary. So comedy was the only way I was making a living. Like since I was 18, I've been a comedian because I had no other choice. You know, I couldn't go to college because they don't give scholarship or grants or anything to people who are undocumented. None of that happens. So, so uh, for a long time, I'm good now yeah. for listeners. I'm good now, <laughs> but I wasn't at the time. So, so I had somebody offer me a great deal in Indianapolis. They go, Hey man, come out. His name's Steve Hofsetter. Fuck that guy. Because I'm living my life in New York city, you know? And he tells me, Hey, come out to Indianapolis. You're going to make $70,000 a year working with me. I'm going to help you go on tour. I know that you're, you're struggling right now. I know your situation. Wink, wink. You know, I want to help you out. You know, I told my girlfriend, you know, she's pregnant. I was like, look, I'm a comic. It's all I have. You know, I don't, my paperwork's crazy. You know, things are really chaotic for me right now. I need to, this is great money. Like this is my my one chance to really make it in comedy. So I go to Indianapolis. We're there a few months. Steve hops out of this size. He's not coming anymore. And I go, dude, I have a family. My kids are, well, you know, I'm going through my own things. And I go, well, I'm going to sue you. And he goes, well, we don't have a contract, so fuck you. Wow. And at that point, I'm upset. And luckily, my girlfriend, you know, she's very reasonable and rational. She's like, look, we can, you know, buckle down. And my girlfriend goes, how about if we move to Philly? You know, it's two hours outside of New York. Your son, you know, lives in New York City. We're about to have this baby. Let's go over there. What's your first thought when she says that? One more shot. Let's give it one more shot at this. Like, if this doesn't work out, I'm just going to quit comedy and I'm going to quit all and screw it. So I packed up a U-Haul, you know, the, uh, a freaking two-month-old in the back seat. I'm driving the U-Haul. My girlfriend's driving our car, directing traffic behind me so I can get this giant U-Haul from <laughs> Indianapolis to Philadelphia. Right. We're coming down. Jeez, uh, when you come up from um, uh, King of Prussia Mall down that highway and I just see Philly and for the first time and I see the lake and, and those kids rowing because it's summertime right, and, I'm yeah. through, and I'm just like, it's okay. It doesn't seem so bad here. Like, I don't know. Something about the city just made me take a sigh of like a deep breath in over a year. And um, yeah, being here for the last two years now, has been like this just Philadelphia. I don't know what your experience is, but me being here, like I was so consumed with figuring out how to make it in comedy in New York. You know what I mean? How to be successful because everybody around me was successful. And, and if a guy became successful, how do I become successful like him? And then I went to Indianapolis. There was nothing there. And, Indianap and then Philly became this perfect blend of just be yourself, but we also have opportunities out here. Like there was no pressure to me. Like, so I got to do comedy the way I wanted. I got to be who I wanted. And honestly, like this city has really helped me find my voice just like in, in life. Yeah. So would you, so would you say that in the New York comedy scene, people aren't, aren't being themselves? Is that what you're saying? So I see it happening. Like when somebody becomes successful, like I'm talking about like somebody like example, Michael Che, like I know Michael Che, like, you know, on a side of the night live and everything. When he became famous, then everybody switched their styles to try and act like Michael Che because now the industry is looking for the next Michael Che. New York is like, we're looking for the next this guy, the next that guy, the next that guy. So as an unsure young comedian, as somebody who like, listen man, undocumented, so I don't even know if I'm Dominican or American, what the hell I am, you know what I mean? Like I'm half black, half white technically, like I have no idea. And then I'm in this comedy scene where I'm starting to figure out who I am as a person. And I'm like, how about if I act like that guy? How about if I act like that guy? How about if I act like this guy? Would people like me then? Would people find want to put me on TV then? Because I'm looking for a job, you know what I mean? I'm trying to survive in this. So being in New York made it very impossible for me to be myself because people around me were finding such such success. Being other people. Yeah, or, you know, in a way imitating and you don't figure out who you are. And that's a danger that a lot of people who start comedy in New York fall into that, you know, there's so much success, so many people around you, you don't know who you are. Smaller markets allow you to 
grow with people and grow with friends and sort of branch off. And then you can kind of find your voice and then go to New York already kind of a little bit established of who you are. So let's back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. How did you even get into comedy in the first place? Legit, it was, I couldn't go to college. I was in high school crushing. Like I was doing pretty well. Like I, I wanted to be a doctor. You know, I was, uh, I, this is thing in New York City called Health Occupation Students of America. I won like their presidency. I was going to get a scholarship to St. John University. And then that, actually, it wasn't, this is what happens to a lot of people who are undocumented that they don't understand. You fall in and out of different statuses throughout years. Things like that happen to you all the time. So at that point, I was out of status. I'd have no working papers, nothing. And when you're so, like that. So yeah, out of status means that you just have, you don't have supporting documentation that you're legally there. Is that yes. what it means? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So I came to this country, you know, legally because, you know, my my father was beating my mother. So we came here with a visa. But after three years, that expired and my mom tried to get asylum. And those laws are actually pretty hard to get because even if you're being beat, they, they're very hard. Trump's already taken away things that are so hard. It was already hard back in the 90s when my mom tried to come here. So that's why we fell in and out of statuses a lot. You know. I have, so at this point? At this point, 18 years old, I want to go to college. I, I, I have like some money coming my way to go to St. John's University to try and do something in medicine. I really am interested in medicine. You have the drive, you have, have the success. You've Nobody's telling me to do this. This is just me figuring out for myself. My parents weren't around much either. That's another thing. Like they weren't around, so I'm guiding myself. And I'm like, you know what? I'm actually pretty smart. I go to a shitty school, but I learned that in this shitty school, if you actually achieve, they look at you because they're like, oh, look at this kid is not a gangster. Like he's actually smart. I knew that. I knew in this school, so I busted my ass. So then that's what happened. When I try to go to get my scholarship and try to get grants and try to get whatever, they're like, you have no status, dude. You can't get anything. So then at that point, I was miserable working at Toys R Us because I got in that job when I did have status. But then if I left, I couldn't get another job. You couldn't even come back. I couldn't point. come back. You know what I mean? So then I had a girlfriend at the time and I'm telling him a situation and, and I'm making her laugh because I'm like, that's stupid. Like I got drive and there's white people who have no drive. Like yeah. that's what they are. I'm making her <laughs> laugh. And she's like, and she's like, oh, you're so funny. You should be like a comedian. And I go, I should, right? And she goes like, yeah, you know, I always thought you were very funny. Like, I, I'm not just saying that my friends think you're very funny, not obnoxious funny, funny. Like, and I was like, screw it. And I Googled funny jobs that night. And on my own with a buddy of mine, I went to an open mic that night and I told a few stories from my life, a couple of little jokes, and I really made the audience laugh. And I looked at myself and I was like, eight years, give this eight years. All my friends are going to college you know what I mean? Or selling drugs. And I don't want to do either. I, I don't want to do the one that yeah. they're doing. <laughs> yeah. I want to do so they something like eight years. Do eight years. And what's funny is like doing comedy, I didn't realize this. They pay you cash a lot. So I was like, cha-ching, what a great way to me to get paid cash. So I used that money to become a nursing assistant. So I used my comedy money a to- A nursing assistant. A nursing assistant, yeah. Wow. And to put in paperwork to get work permit and all that stuff. And then I got married and I got my green card through all that. But for a long time, like my comedy was, was helping me keep my status and keep everything alive. So literally comedy saved my life. Wow. So at what point did you decide to pursue comedy full time? It was then, um, it was when Steve Hopsetter called me. You know what I mean? Because at that point, things were still shaky. And I was like, well, I don't want to lose this job. And then I'm out on the streets again. Like, my status kept making it so unsure of what my job would ever be. You know what I mean? Right. You started doing stand-up just kind of on the suggestion of your girlfriend. But I feel like a lot of people say, I should do stand-up. I'm funny. But they probably don't realize how much work it takes, how much writing, how much yeah, honing yeah. it takes. How did you learn how to do that? Well, okay, let, let's not say that she just said, go be a comedian and stuff. Like, I knew that I was funny. I just didn't know you could do it for a living until she said it. Like, honestly, like in eighth grade, I used to have a calendar that I would put an X whenever I would make the entire class laugh. 
I had a streak of three weeks. What? I'm telling you, dude, I'm not even lying to you. One time a teacher just one time went, was laughing so hard. She went, can I continue? And I went, yeah. yeah. Like I, I let her go, you yeah, <laughs> of course you can. I say it's cool. The one time I ever found out, like I actually noticed I was funny was I was asking a question during an SAT prep course about logarithms, right? And I asked a, a serious question from the heart, right? And then I, and I said something and the entire class laughed and applauded. And I looked at my friend, I'll never forget my friend, Nicole. I'll still give her props for this. I go, why is everybody laughing? And they go, you don't get it. You just know how to say things funny. And I go, all right, thank you. That, that, that helped me a lot because I was wondering why people always laugh at me because I know how to say things funny. Funny has always been the way I got out of getting my ass beat. It's been my survival tactic for everything, man. When, when I was on a plane, knowing that I was leaving my country at that point, I was just laughing it up. You know what I mean? When I was, you know, I wasn't raised by anybody, really. Like people, I might've come to this country, but I was really abandoned in this country. Really, my parents didn't raise me. I was moved around from aunt to uncle, whoever could take me in. You know what I mean? So laughter was always what I had with me. So when a girl said, you should be a comedian, it became, yeah, that makes sense. And I don't know what became of me where I was like, mind you, for the, by the way, let me tell you this, for the first eight years, I did it wrong. For the first eight years, I went in with, with the hip hop mentality. I thought I was gonna meet Jay-Z. Okay. You know what I mean, I thought I was gonna, Jay-Z brags about never writing. He's like, never all right. But if I, you know, he's talk, he brags. So I thought comedy was the same way. I thought you never wrote. I honestly, for the first year, didn't have an act. I would just go up there, riff. People would laugh. Sometimes I don't know why they would laugh. I would just start talking, and then I had a recorder, and then I would go back and just make notes of what they did laugh at, and then I would take those laughing moments and create fake stories around those moments that would help me get to that laugh quicker. So that's how I started doing it, and that's my first thing. Like, no, that's called writing. And I'm yeah. like, oh, that's writing. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that's what it was. But by the way, I did that just as at first I didn't have an idea for the first eight years of what I would talk about on stage. Then it became like. I would get in front of the computer after eight years after somebody was like, hey, you're funny, but you talk too much. Do you know what I mean? You need to know how to cut your words. And I was like, what does that mean? Because it's called editing. Since I didn't get to go to school, I didn't waste all that money on, you know, all these things that I was never going to use. So what I have done in the last three years, whenever I see like, oh, my grammar is not really good. Or, you know, well, I don't care. Uh, I just look up, you know, I look up uh, books on to library about grammar and I've learned that. Or when I wanted to learn how to really write for late night, I took out a bunch of books of late night writers and I learned how to put a packet together. So, you know, I just, in the last three years when I've really learned how to not rely on other people anymore, you know, cause that was my problem. When I moved out to Indianapolis, I wanted Steve to do the work for me. You know, I wanted Steve to be the one to make me famous. I wanted Steve to be the one to bring me my money in instead of realizing that's not how it's going to happen, man. I need to write my own words and bring my own, my own comedy to paper and submit those and hopefully get a job one day. You know what I mean? I need to do it for myself, you know? So that, that's so I've learned. I've learned everything up to this point you know, to literally go into the library. So it's been, you said three years now in Philly. Two going on three. Going on three. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything about the Philly comic scene that has particularly surprised you? Uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know they would be so nice. <laughs> Do you oh, know what no. I mean? Yeah, but not nice in a bad way, man. Like I've never felt so, so brought into a community in my life. Like not family, not, not honestly, the second I arrived was every comic by the way, uh, I don't know if you know any of the comedy scene, but there's always a comedian, Shane Gillis, who gives me a lot of shit because when I first got here, I didn't tell anybody I had credits. You know, comedians, their whole thing is, you know, got to get these credits. Like I've been on TV. Like I've, I've done stuff on, you know, I'll say a few things, you know. You know, I've done, I've done commercials on TV. I've been to Gotham Comedy Live on Access TV. I've done 50 Central on BET. I've done those things, right? But when I came back to Philly, I said, that doesn't matter. Like nobody's going to know anything about me. You know what I mean? Nobody's not going to know anything. All I want people to know, tell me is if I'm funny or not. 
I don't care about the credits. And that's what happened. Like, I didn't tell anybody. So at the open mics, you know, I would get a few chuckles and I started writing brand new jokes, you know, and they, and once I started seeing that people were really responding to me, I started getting on shows very quickly. And it wasn't because I was on TV. It's because the people in Philly were actually watching and paying attention and be like, hey, this kid's good. We should give him stage time because he's good. We shouldn't give him stage time in New York because he's on Saturday Night Live. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of things in New York where all you needed to do is have a credit and anybody will throw you up. In Philadelphia, it became, you're funny, so you're going to go up. And it, it was very easy to be able to find my funny because the funnier I became, the more I got up. So, and, and then actually a comic, Shane Gillis, a year later was like, came up to me, was like, I Googled you. You've been on TV and stuff. And I go, yeah, I was like, how come you never told anybody? Like the clubs would have been working. I was like, no, I want to get in the clubs because the clubs think I'm funny. I want to get these things because they think I'm funny. Not because I have a credit from something I did two years ago. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So it became, I really, I really feel like I've worked my way. I'm still working my way up. But it's from, I started from zero in Philly and I like that. Yeah. So where do you think it's going to go from here? Do you think you're going to stay in Philly for a long time? I want to be in Philly as long as Philly will have me, man. I really want to buy a home here. I want to uh, put my roots here. I want to open up a comedy, comedy club here. And I really do hope that more industry starts moving down this way. Like New York is getting way too expensive. You know what I mean? I, I got to say is if any New York comic or anybody in, in New York is following their dreams, some of you will make it. Most of you are just going to be funny waiters for all your life because you're not getting out enough to do, follow your dreams because you have to fucking work so hard just to pay your bills. In Philly, it gives you that beauty of it's not too expensive right. so I can have a job and still follow my dreams. And that's why I love being here. I want to be here and just continue following my dreams from here because it's great. I just need more TV here or more industry. So do you have any advice for an aspiring comedian who isn't, I guess, in New York City? Like how would they get started? Uh, yeah, just start your own show. Legit. Like this is, this is the world of DIY. So like, go do it yourself. DIY, man. I mean, look at us, the way we're doing a podcast right now mm -hmm. with such, such, well, your equipment's pretty cool. My equipment's very basic, but I'm saying you could do a podcast with the most basic equipment, you know, get your friends to be on your podcast, do a movie podcast or whatever, where you watch something. There's ways to, I think most, like I, I, I was hungry for other people to do the work for me. Like, like I said, like I follow Steve. You have to do it for yourself, man. You have to write every day. You cannot let it pass. You gotta write every day. You gotta send out emails every day to shows you wanna be on and bother people. Like you, if you, if you wanna do this, like you have to take it like it's a job. You know what I mean? You have to take it very seriously. So let's talk about the podcast. Mm -hmm. You started a podcast about a year ago. Yeah. It's called? American Immigrant. American Immigrant. Yeah. Uh, what was your, what was the idea behind that? Why did you do that? I honestly just thought of my to myself, like, I want to do, like, WTF International. Mark Maron has a podcast, WTF, right? Okay. And it's all about comedians and people he has on. And he has a lot of comedians on. And I've noticed that for the first five years, it was nothing but white comedians. You know what I mean? You know, I love a lot of white comedians. Like, I love Will Arnett. I love Will Farrell. I love all the Wills and all the Jimmies. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? They really are all They're Will all and Will and Jimmies, man. They're all Will and Jimmies. But then I was like, Oh, and then he's like, and Mark Man one episode goes, you know, if there's more people of color who want to come on, you know, just uh, just just contact me. And I go, where are you that you don't see them? Because I see them every day. You know what I mean? You know, so they're everywhere to me. So I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna do WTF International. So what I was gonna do is just, you know, interview comedians from other countries just like me who are here following their dreams. But then it kind of evolved into this this thing of identity. It became like almost this cultural identity podcast because. 
a lot of people are just confused as I am. I didn't know like that they were, you know, because I might be born Dominican Republic, but honestly, like Spanish culture is okay to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like I like spicy food, but not that much. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love <laughs> Mel Brooks movie. Like yeah. I am seriously an old Jew at heart, just with a little bit of swag. Do you know what I mean? So that's what like, it's just, I don't know. It's just, so the podcast became more of a culture identity kind of thing. And it's become very interesting of people yeah, coming here and trying to figure out how do they keep their culture and then mix it with American culture, you know, and what do you keep? What do you what do you give up? And it's very interesting to hear people like be very confused. And I always I always have white people come up to me and go, can I do your podcast? And I always go, you tell me <laughs> if you can do my podcast, because it's about immigration. It's how you relate to it. We're all immigrants in this country. Right. Everyone. But some people decide that they're not anymore. So, so sometimes I have white people go like, my grandfather's from Poland and I love him and I have some pictures of him and stuff like, then come on. And it becomes, they look up more Polish things and they be like, yeah, I'm only disconnected this by two generations. Why am I not even thinking about this? You know? So it's very interesting what people come on to talk about. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you know, informing people not only how they're related to other folks who are immigrants, but how they themselves are also immigrants. Yeah. It's, it's been very, it's been very eye-opening. Are there any differences between Miguel behind the podcast mic versus Miguel behind the stand-up mic? Uh, I'm trying to blend them together a lot more. Uh, what were the differences that you saw at first that you're trying to blend together? I try to be more jokey on this, on the podcast, like on American Immigrant. I try to make it more like, it's a comedy podcast, guys. We're going to do a couple of jokes in between. It's going to be great. But, um, and then I'm also starting to realize that a lot of the... Um, the, the stand-up that I do is emotional. You know what I mean? I talk about like my journey as an immigrant and stuff like that. And on this, I was trying to throw out a lot of facts because I'm, I was trying to like learn more and try to seem more educated in this, you know? When I realized like my thing is I am kind of just like a goofy dude walking through life in a way, you know what I mean? And I, yeah, I'm like, oh, this is what it is. It's silly. So I the podcast has become a little bit more of me not taking it so seriously, you know? Um, so let's talk more about Philly. I mean, there's a couple questions that I ask all my guests just to get different perspectives. Uh, and I think yours is unique in two ways. One, because I haven't talked to anybody in the comedy scene yet. And two, uh, because you're still relatively fresh to Philadelphia. Some people, you know, have, have been here for a long time. Um, so from what you've seen so far, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Income inequality. I mean, I hate to just go straight there, but I drive for Lyft, you know, and I, I, drive, I drive a white person from, you know, Center City to Fishtown. You know, in, in the nice neighborhood and then a block over, I see 40 crackheads just just falling asleep on the street. And I go, how is this? How I mean, I lived in New York and it's not even like this. How does a city go from one block, heroin needles and everything on the floor to the next block, one of the most beautiful homes and everything? How do you do that? Like, what happened here? You know what I mean? So income inequality is one of the things. Schools, when I drive through the ghetto, I mean, it's not just political talk. Those schools look terrible. And as a kid who came from a school like that, you know I mean, I went to... um uh, oh God, East High School, Northeast High School. I went there and interviewed some of the students there. And I'm like, I'm like, how are you still having the same kind of crappy education and horrible things happening in school that I had in 2000? I mean, like there was no change. You know what I mean? Those were all those people of color that I grew up with just still scared about the same thing. Their parents getting deported or being shot after school, walking home the wrong way. And I'm like, what? why is this still happening? I mean, there's possibility for things to change. I mean, we can, I'm, I'm more, I'm more optimistic. I'm like, why doesn't the city like Philadelphia invest so much money on renewable energy? Put everybody learn how to use solar panels, put them on people's homes, lower rent. I mean, lower light bills for people. Like there's so many easy ways to just save people money that it will also be good for the environment, but they don't do it for the inner cities first. Yeah. 
you know? What's crazy is almost every single person that I've interviewed says that. And that's easy because you see it. It's so easy to see. In Philly, it is in your face. I mean, I've lived in Chicago for a bit, New York City, Indianapolis. It takes a minute to see it. Philly jumps from block to block in ways that I'm like, what is happening? And it's been, the money's being very centralized. The money's only moving to certain neighborhoods. You see that. So on the flip side, what's the most encouraging thing you see about Philadelphia? I, I like to see the fact that the, everybody that I've talked to just seems passionate like this, honestly. Like, I don't know... Maybe it was just because of the climate of, of what's going on, but I honestly can have a lot deeper conversations with people in Philadelphia. Do you know what I mean? Like, I honestly, like this income inequality conversation I've been able to have with people. I've been able to seriously, like, I don't know, people in Philly, is, and I'll tell you this, even in my comedy, okay, even in my comedy, they're very receptive to, to different ideas. And that's the one thing I think Philadelphia has, that you just have that, I mean, this is where the country was founded. This is where it started. I think Philadelphia still has that, like let's debate. Yeah. Let's <laughs> debate this shit. This is where debate was fucking founded. That's let's right. do that shit. Yeah. I think I think Philadelphia. I think New York is too much. We're liberal, and LA's like we're liberal, and you know every in the, the Midwest is red. Philly's like we don't know what we are, man. This is where it all started, and all this shit. We're still trying to figure it out. You know, I I think Philly still has that possibility of merging things, but I think like. I don't know, man. I think we need to work on the income first. But then I think but I think there's more hope. I see more hope in Philly of blending the two than I do in any other city. If you could send a text message to every Philadelphian, so you get one message that every Philadelphian would receive, what would you say? Vote your conscience. Vote their conscience on I believe it's November eighth. I'm gonna look that up because I'm gonna send a text. I'm gonna Google that day, but yeah, just vote, vote in the midterms. That's what I would tell you, Philadelphia, because I think we all feel something's wrong. We all want to do something, but like, how do I do it? I'm telling you, just you got to vote. You can't sit out anymore. This whole sitting out thing, no. Or which one's better? Which one's more evil than the other? You really got to look at both of them and be like, yeah, this one's definitely going to be more evil than that one. I understand how politics work. You know what I mean? Just vote, please. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you could send a message to yourself in the past at any moment, other than just words of encouragement, would you? And if so, what would you say? <laughs> I would honestly tell myself, don't worry, somebody's going to love you eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah, man. And I'm kind of teary out a little bit, but I'm like, yeah, I would tell young me. Like, sometimes I think about that, like, giving my young self a hug, because I hated myself for a long time, you know? And I, I love just thinking about, like, me as a youth, being like, dude, this isn't your fault, man. Nobody's teaching you right from wrong. You're just learning as you go along. You're learning from your boys in the streets or the people that sell drugs they think are cool. You're not learning from the right people. This isn't your fault. So I, I really tell myself, somebody's going to love you eventually the right way. Sounds like you found it, though. Oh, yeah. Her and my kids, man. It's all for them. Honestly, like, right before I got this, I got a message from, um, I, I submitted for NACA, you know, and, you know, the college thing, and I didn't get it. And I called her crying. She's like, why are you crying? Because I wanted to send you to college. She wants to go back to school because we're both, like, struggling right now. And if I had NACA, I was going to send her to school so she can become, she wants to become a chef. She wants. To, she was a chef for a while, but she doesn't have a culinary license, so she wants to go to school. You know, and, and we're taking turns. We're gonna take turns. She's gonna go to school to better herself, and I'm gonna go to school. We we agreed on this, but this NACA thing was what I was gonna use that money to send her to school. And she's like, "Don't worry." And I was like, "No, but I wanted this for us, damn it! I wanted this for you." But nah, yeah, nah, I found someone. That's Legit. cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I'm pumped to see. I, I don't know. I was uh, I was watching some of your videos. Yeah, and, you like uh, it? NACA was wrong, right? <laughs> Fuck NACA. Yeah. Honestly, I honestly, and by the way, there's maybe I hate when I make excuses like this, but like I know who the people who watch these videos for, not who they are specifically, but it's a lot of college students, and a lot of my comedy is about being illegal and being an immigrant and being undocumented. College campuses, I'm not safe on college campuses. Vice did a whole thing on colleges where they were talking about how they actually interviewed people who 
pick comedians to come to the colleges. And those people were saying, I don't book anybody slightly controversial because the students need to be kept safe. Mm. And I'm like, I'm sorry I'm not safe that I'm talking about how this country's fucked over immigrants for a long time, but I talk about it funny though. But they don't want to hear that, you know? I make you laugh about it though. Oh, I make you laugh though. You'll be like, oh God, I am so wrong, but it's so funny that I'm wrong. <laughs> like, it's so funny that I'm wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh man. Well, hey, I mean, I was digging it. <laughs> I've always been great at that, man. I've always been making, been able to make my enemy laugh. Oh, anybody, dude! I want every time. Every time I've been pulled over by the cops or something like that, I just, I just make them laugh, and they just, they're just like, "Yep, this guy's great." Yeah, I just know how to make it laugh, man. Folks want to find you online. Want to, want to see your stuff. Where can they go? Yeah, uh, you can find me on. Actually, I made it very easy: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Miguel Dalmau. Um, if you go on Facebook or anything, just, honestly, if you Google Miguel Comedy, I'm very proud. I became the number one. More so, yeah, just Miguel Comedy, and I come right up. I'm Got right that up. That SEO going. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, 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 I was wondering what's the least amount of words you have to type in to find me. Uh, yeah, Miguel Comedy. That's the easiest way to find me. You'll see my real name, and everything, but you also see Miguel Comedy girlfriend because I talk about her so much. <laughs> yeah. You can also head to podphillyhoo.com forward slash Dalmau. That's D A L M A U for more on Miguel. Very special thanks to Miguel for being a guest on the show today, and special thanks to Alex Yang. Podcast art by Lauren Carhart, music by Lee Rosevere. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PodPhillyWho. Let us know if you've got any ideas or feedback. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Thanks so much for tuning in. And stay tuned now for a clip of Miguel's stand-up. Uh, I'm doing great. I recently became a U.S. resident. Uh, I was born in Dominican Republic. I came here when I was seven years old. You know, so I'm just a resident now. So with everything going on, people have asked me if I'm afraid about being deported. And I know I should be, but the problem is that I lived here for so long that I've developed too much American arrogance to be afraid. <laughs> like every time I think about getting deported, I'm like, all right, sure, I have a high school diploma. But was that like a master's degree in the third world? No. When I get back there, I'll just be president, right? That seems... <laughs> That I think I'm gonna go back to the Dominican Republic and be like, hey everybody, uh, I'm back. Uh, I got a 2.4 high school GPA and I've seen Scandal. So, <laughs> I'm ready to run this. I mean, have you guys even seen the last season? No? I'm overqualified, but whatever. <laughs> That's how I'll roll. You know, I know this country has a lot of issues, but you gotta realize, I like living here. Alright? I'm from the slums. I didn't flush my first toilet until I was seven years old. You appreciate little things. You know, like for me, whenever the president says something crazy, I'm just like, what the flush? You know, it's not all bad. <laughs> what happened to me was, yeah, I was actually undocumented for over 20 years. What happened was my mom flew me here, and then we overstayed our visa, which is actually a lot of people become illegal. But a lot of Americans don't know that, because whenever somebody finds out I was undocumented, the first question would be, oh my God, how'd you get here? Because they want to hear an awesome escape story. Like, how did I get here? I swam 300 miles. I punched three sharks. But they got very disappointed. I'm like, how did I get here? American Airlines. I watched Aaron Brockovich my whole way to freedom. Sorry. I was undocumented for over 20 years. When you grow up like that, being deported is a real fear. But the problem around my house was that my mom use that like it was the boogeyman just to get me to do things all the time. 
Isn't that horrible to use ice against your own baby? She do it all the time too. Like I'd be leaving the house, she'd be like, hey, take a sweater. I'm like, oh, I don't need a sweater. She's like, oh, you don't need a sweater? You know what's gonna happen? It's gonna start raining. Okay, you're gonna call in the rain. You're gonna start being sick. You're gonna cough, you're gonna faint. They're gonna call 911. They're gonna take it to the hospital. They're gonna ask you for your social security number. You don't have one. You're gonna get deported. Fine, I'll get a sweater. Jesus. Wow, bring it down a notch, lady. Which sweater should I take? Which one's gonna get me less deported? This thing is gonna get less deported? So I's gonna be driving like that kid looks comfortable. I don't know. That's how my mom was. I was poor growing up, but God bless my mother, man. She never let me know we were poor. She just let me think she was racist. And here's why. Because every time I wanted to sign up for something, my mom never had the heart to tell me she couldn't afford it. So what she would do is, she would come up with a racist excuse as to why I couldn't do it. Because that way, she's not letting me down, but society <laughs> is letting her baby down. Isn't that smart? She do it all the time to her mom. She's like, Mom, can I play basketball? She's like, no, sorry, mijo. You're not black enough. No. <laughs> yeah, you see Michael Jordan, he real black, so he real good. <laughs> All right, can I do karate? No, you're not Chinese. I've seen your mask or trust me, you're not even 5% Chinese. You even know what that means? No. <laughs> I'm like, all right, can I play baseball? She's like, no, why do you want to be like every other Dominican? <laughs> why don't you go be yourself? And I gotta be honest with you, that's, that's pretty smart. You know what I mean? Because now that I'm a parent, I don't have money, and I can't afford things, and I don't want to take responsibility for this either. <laughs> so I'm just going to have to do what my mom does, but you know, I'm going to have to implement her tactics for like, you know, 2018, you know, for the new, the new world. Like, my son comes up to me, and he's like, Dad, can I play football? I have to be like, ah, oh, there you go, identifying as a boy again. <laughs> Why don't you go find your own gender identity, okay? <laughs> All right, in this country, I have a girlfriend, and I don't mean to brag, but uh, my girlfriend is white, because you know, keep the enemies close. <laughs> my girlfriend's white, but uh, being with her, I've noticed is that she doesn't have white privilege, because 80% of her body is covered in tattoos and she has gauges. And being with her, I've noticed that there are two things conservatives don't trust, and that's people of color and white people who ruined the original hardware. <laughs> Anytime her and I walk into a department store and we split up, for these employees, a real Sophie's choice on who to follow. <laughs> I always see them so confused. They're always like, ah, oh, the immigrant or the opioid epidemic? I don't know who to go with right now. The media tells me they're both an issue. My girlfriend has a lot of tattoos, but luckily uh, she doesn't have any tattoos on her face, and I like that because I'm terrified of white people who have tattoos on their face. Because every time I see that, that tells me that person is on meth. Right? Because that's 100% a meth decision, right? Like no sober, sane white person will calmly walk into a tattoo parlor and go, hi, shopkeep, how are you? <laughs> Listen, sir, do you know that thing where I don't get profiled or the cops don't follow me around or I can get a job wherever I want? Yeah? Well, screw all that. <laughs> and just put a serpent eating an egg on my face. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, my girlfriend is bad, man. Other than being covered in tattoos, right? She also knows how to hunt, plays basketball, and knows how to rebuild cars. 
Yeah, so while some guys might grow up and end up with someone who's like their mother, I ended up with someone who's like the father I've never had. <laughs> yeah, so recently she told me I changed the oil in our car and playfully she tussled my hair. And she's like, I'm proud of you, champ. I cried for 25 minutes. <laughs>